I've just seen this happen to so many people. If you are a star individual contributor, it is so rare that you're going to be a star manager. And that star I see in some cases can have like a 10x, you know, people joke about the 10x developer. I've seen 10x marketers. I've seen 10x writers. I've seen 10x individual contributors across the board. Now they're rare, but if you've got one, one of the worst things you can do for your company is pigeonhole them into management. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Got a great one today. We do not need to do a long introduction. We are going to get into this one. Here's what I'll say at the top. I think if you want to advance your career or start a new business, typically the way I'm going to think about that is what kind of momentum can I get in a particular content channel with a specific strategy and how am I going to generate leads or attention in that channel? And today's guest is an expert at doing that. She has a practical and inspiring book called Doing Content Right. Her name is Steph Smith, and she's also a nomad and a traveler. In fact, those were some of the topics about her experience traveling were some of the first ones that uh, really got her name out there. She's listed some of her favorite spots in the world as Lisbon, Kyoto, Edinburgh, Changu, and well, we got into a lot into this conversation. I'll just let her take it from here. I never know exactly how to explain what I do because I do a full-time job, but also a bunch of stuff on the side. So as my full-time job, I work at A16Z and Dreesen Horowitz, which is a venture capital firm, and I run their podcast. But on the side, for the last couple of years, I taught myself to code. I have my own podcast called The Shit You Don't Learn in School. I used to write a lot more online. And yeah, I'm always kind of tinkering. Like 10 years ago, if you would have been like, I run a podcast for investors, people would just be like, you're going to need to elaborate a little bit. But now I think people would be like, yeah, that's a thing. I'm curious if you could tell us the story of how that came about, because it's quite remarkable. It wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. Well, you say 10 years ago. I mean, even five years ago, three years ago, for me specifically in this role, one year ago, I would have never predicted this. And so, yes, it's a very unique opportunity, but I think it speaks to how the job market is evolving. We have so many more people in creative roles, whether it's podcasting or otherwise. And for me, this role came about, A16Z did reach out, but also it's kind of funny if you even look at the arc of my career. I mean, I did my degree in chemical engineering. And then after that, I worked in business consulting and then I was a marketer. And so there was not a clear path to becoming a podcast host about technology, but it was also the intersection of, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I'm always kind of tinkering. And so About a year before, I had launched my own podcast with my partner, Calvin. That's the shit you don't learn in school. But I also had stumbled my way into leading the podcast network at HubSpot. And then on the side, I had taught myself to code, as I mentioned. And then before that, I led trends at The Hustle. And so it was all this kind of amalgamation of different experiences that I think led to A16Z reaching out. Because, you know, if you were to say, hey, we need a podcast host, Well, maybe that's relatively easy to find. But if you say, I need a podcast host with experience in X, Y, and Z, it becomes harder. And as you layer on more requirements, I think maybe out of luck, maybe out of just, again, this idea of just exploring a lot in the last couple of years, I happened to be one of those people who had checked a few of those boxes, being a marketer, a podcaster, someone who is deep in technology, a creator that had already built an audience. And so, yeah, they ended up reaching out, but that I think speaks to how the job market is evolving and how if you put yourself out there, you truly never know what you could be doing in a year. I'm curious how you guys think about metrics and impact. Just a quick triangulation on one of your blog posts, you quoted Venkatesh Rao. He's like one of my favorite writers. And many years ago, he had noted on his blog that like, oh, Mark Andreessen hired me to like be a sparring partner whatever. And it's interesting because you would go to his blog post and there'd be like one retweet, 
and like a comment or something. But there wasn't this like sense that there was tens of thousands of people reading this blog. There was like this small, important audience reading it. You know, he built a career off of that. How do you guys think about impact versus total distribution and metrics? Do you guys have a sense for what really matters? Yeah. I feel like a lot of content producers get strayed by or get really optimized for metrics that don't matter. I'm wondering if you see some of that too. Absolutely. And I think not just, again, within A16Z, but I've been creating content for years, both personally and for many different companies. And I do think that there is this interesting dilemma where every company will tell you, we don't care about top line metrics. What we care about is that we're reaching the people within our audience and we're converting them to the desired goal. So that is great. And I agree with that inherently. But there's the dilemma that often arises, which is A, sometimes what you actually want is very hard to measure. Podcasting is notorious for this, that you know you can see your top line numbers of how many downloads you're getting. You can't really see very good information about who those people are and whether they do fit within your target audience. And so again, you have this dilemma of, okay, I think I want this, but can you actually measure it? And then the second part is something you alluded to, which is that often these top line metrics, whether it's impressions or listens or downloads, are very compelling to want to track to because you get excited by this idea of reaching so many people. So it's certainly a balance. And I would say that when you can measure your ability to reach the specific audience that you are indeed trying to reach, then you should track to that. However, as I said before, sometimes you truly can't get that data or you can't get the fidelity of that data that you would like. And so what I often say, again, not just with podcasting, is really you should be mapping out all of your key metrics in a very clear dashboard. I always say dashboards over decks. Like you shouldn't be building these decks every month. There should just be a clean (laughs) dashboard that automates on its own. And then within that dashboard, you should have, as people in Startup Land say, a North Star metric. One very clear primary KPI that you're tracking to can you give an example of what North Star, we were having an internal debate about this. Do you have one for one of your brands, like say your ebook or your podcast? Yeah. So, I, okay. So for example, a newsletter is a great example where for a newsletter, you can track open rate, you can track click-through rate, you can track the number of people that receive your email on a specific day. You can track all those things across a given month. You can track those in total as an in aggregate or the unique number of those particular readers. You can track ad dollars. You can track the number of advertisers you have. You can track how far people are getting down an email. You can have an NPS at the bottom of that email that dictates how people actually enjoy it. So across all of those, depending on your brand and depending on what you're optimizing for, because again, as an example, the newsletter, you could be optimizing for ad dollars in a given month. You could be optimizing for growth, top line growth of that newsletter. You could be optimizing for targeting a very specific group of people, as we've discussed. And all of those would correlate to a different North Star metric for your audience. The one thing I will say that I think people generally pay attention to in the wrong way is if you can dictate between unique listeners or readers versus aggregate, it's generally better to look at the unique ones. And specifically what I mean by this is podcasting, for example, you'll hear tons of people talk about their total downloads for the month. But those total downloads are very heavily dictated by the number of episodes you're publishing. And so a simple adjustment to that that I think is a much better metric is looking at your seven-day unique downloads per episode, right? To me, that's a much better metric of the number of people you're reaching for a given episode that's like the true audience that is paying attention to you versus, again, this aggregate download number, which might matter for the charts. It might make you look good. But at least internally, if you're trying to grow your show, you should be paying attention to that. I have a lot of tactical things I would like to ask you about, but I wanted to kind of get to your entrepreneurial moment because you mentioned you're in management consulting, which for a lot of people is sort of an end game. Like, man, this is a great career. It's entrepreneurial and in its own self, but I don't know the story. That's why I'm asking. I'm curious, why did you jump ship, start traveling the world, start tinkering around with all these projects, learning to code, et cetera? Can you bring us to that moment where it seems like a pretty safe profitable path to take. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it was. (laughs) I mean, it was exactly that. It was a very profitable, very clear path. I knew exactly how long I would need 
to get to the next tier of management consulting and the next one and how much that would make exactly what that life would look like. And that's exactly why I exited that path because it was just, it was so boring and nothing against the company I worked with. But I think when you are at that age, I had just graduated at 21, I believe. And so by the time I left management consulting, I was 22. I was like, in what world am I maybe a quarter through my life and the rest of it is just laid out for me and nothing is going to change. And it just seemed so stale. It seemed like, you know, maybe this is what I should be doing when I'm 50 and I'm over halfway through my life. But if I've gained anything, because prior to that, I had done a year abroad where I went on exchange and I explored a bunch. And from that period and a few other experiences, it was like, if I've learned anything, it's that there's just so much more to see and so much more to do. And this isn't the time for my life to kind of be over in a way. And so I had heard of these people, which now are very common, but at the time were not, which were these people who were nomadic and lived and worked wherever they wanted as long as they had Wi-Fi. And so I'd heard of those. And then I spent basically a majority of the year where I was working in management consulting in my free time and in the weekend, getting contract roles and just like learning more about what could be done online, which again, sounds like so obvious, so clean and easy now, but it wasn't back then. There was literally, there was a few job boards And on those job boards, you'd see like one new remote job show up every other day. There was like flex jobs too, which a lot of the jobs weren't remote, right? They were sort of... Exactly. They were like location-specific online jobs, things like that. Yeah. And at the time, I just kept applying to jobs. I got a couple contract roles along the way that built up some inkling of a resume that meant that I could show people I know how to work online. I have these skills across social media and marketing and things like that. And then I, I think I honestly just got lucky and ended up in a fully remote job. But to get back to your question, it really was like, this can't be it. There has to be more to do. And I think that has continued throughout my life as I get exposed to more things. For example, once I had gone remote and become nomadic, I got exposed to this whole new group of people who were not just working remotely, but who were building their own businesses, who were indie hacking, who didn't need to raise money. And for me, that was like, oh, wow, I didn't know this existed. What is the difference between me and them? And at that point, it was learning to code. So that's another example of how just the exposure of there's more out there led to the next thing. So you got a job at TopTal. Was that the one that allowed you to work remotely? Yeah, that's it. What sort of things did you do for growth at TopTal? Just for some background, I own a job board, which is basically like the third or fourth best job board behind Remote OK and we work remotely. And so we're just kind of hanging out in third or fourth position because we were like the last to market. And we have nice jobs and nice customers and all this, but we're like solidly third or fourth place. And I'm curious, like if you were to come hang out and put in a solid three months of expertise, what are some things that you would think about from all your experience about how to grow a job board in 2023? Like what are some opportunities out there or just some block and tackling basics that good job sites do for their users? Yeah, so I'll I'll clarify that TopTel is not really a job board, but there are parallels for sure. Well, I think to answer your question about what I did there, it was anything that would grow the business. That could be partnerships, that could be organic growth, it could be paid growth, it could be affiliates, it could be improving the network or working with the actual product itself, UX. It was literally anything we could do along the full funnel that would improve. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's what a growth team does. The growth team is like their mandate is here. We talked about North Star Metrics. Here's your North Star metric. Do what you can do to grow it. And so you're going around the company like demanding data from certain people, different function groups and stuff. How do you justify that like this is worth like the next two weeks of your time? Do you have to like write out strategy documentation or you just make the case, the carpe diem moment? I mean, sometimes there's memos and things like that. But really, if you are doing a good job with growth, data should rule the day. Like you should be able to clearly say, here's our funnel. Here's an aspect of our funnel that we want to run a test on because we believe it has this upside. And you run the test if you get the buy-in. And ideally, you show whether that test is or has been successful. I mean, I've gone on to other companies that were way less data-driven. And that's honestly something that I really struggle with because when you are in situations where you are having to kind of say, hey, let's do this project, I think it'll maybe have some impact. It's just not compelling to me. I think most things at a company should be 
pretty data-driven. And that really comes from not just my time at TopTel, but also the management consulting days, which was kind of a non-standard consulting firm where there were some decks, but really I spent my whole day in Excel building really, really thorough models, models that could predict if a Fortune 500 company opened up a store in this zip code, these are the sales that it would do in its first day, its first week, its first month. This is how it would cannibalize another store. So these are really thorough models to the point where, you know, you're just talking about how to run better Facebook ads. That's much more simple, but you should still be paying attention to data. And so to answer your question about job boards, I think something a lot of people miss these days about job boards, you're not one of them, clearly, if you're ranking and you're getting traffic, is that they think about, again, if I build it, they will come. The easiest thing you can do today is launch a job board. There are tools where it's just plug and play. It'll pull directly from an Excel or Google Sheet. And so the actual idea of creating one is not hard. The question is, how do you get distribution? I think the channel that not just with job boards, but people underrate fundamentally is still SEO. And the reason for that is because almost every other channel is what I call, it doesn't have bedrock. And so that includes paid ads, actually paid ads especially, which means that if you invest in an ad today, well, the investment that you've made might've converted a customer or a user, but that dollar is gone tomorrow. And unless you've got a really good retention system, it's really hard to build up anything substantial. Another good example of something without bedrock is a lot of people try, for example, to trend on Hacker News or similar sites like Reddit. Well, it's the same thing where if you hit gold in those cases, great for you, but you get that big blip that goes up and then it goes right back down. And the idea of bedrock is really important because SEO is, it takes a long time. Although today with some of the AI tools that are available, it's easier than ever to create content. And so what I would encourage most companies to do is figure out who they're trying to reach, what those people are searching for as it relates to their business, and really focus on building that bedrock with SEO. And again, this is not just with job boards, but I think with job boards in particular, if you look at any of the top job boards that are really doing well, they're getting a majority of their traffic through organic. And that's really, again, for the calculus to make sense, these job boards couldn't get that traffic through paid search, it just wouldn't make sense. What does it mean to be data-driven for you? I'm curious, like if you could compare and contrast, I think a lot of our listeners are small business owners, kind of stick with our intuition, maybe not the most disciplined. And I think a lot of us love the concept of bringing in more disciplined approaches. I tend to write a lot of memos to my team, but I don't present a lot of spreadsheets to them. I'm curious how might I introduce those things to make more compelling, clear cases to the team about directions I'm advocating for? Well, let me start by answering this question with, I guess, the time period or the example where I realized this is really important. And it's a simple example, but during my days at TopTal, my very first few months, we were tasked with some paid ads in generating leads. And we had brainstormed for ages, the copy, the images, things like that, that we thought would really work. And there were so many examples where I thought this is really going to work and this is not going to work. And even in the cases, because I was early on in that role and my understanding of growth and marketing, I actually was like, why would we even run some of these, right? Like if we don't think it's going to work, let's just run the ones that we do think will work. But no, I was lucky at the time that I had a boss that was very also data-driven, but also very experienced. And he got us to create this big spreadsheet of experiments we ran them all. And not only was I wrong about what worked, I was so wrong. And many people on the team were so wrong. And in that case, you saw more of the Pareto principle where it was like, not only are some of these outperforming others, there was one that so drastically outperformed everything else. And it was not what we would have expected. And even after finding that one that performed well, it took us so long to replicate it. We even tried creating images similar to it. We tried using copy similar. Nothing for so long emulated it. And to this day, it's kind of hard to articulate why. But at the same time, we huh. had the data. And we had the data of what was working. And that's just, again, one example in my career where I've not only been wrong, but I've been very wrong. Do you find that your intuition is tracking upwards? Or 
do you still see like a volume approach is the one that works the best? I do think my intuition has gotten better throughout the years as I have learned more about what works and what doesn't and also just gotten more creative. So instead of just experiments that you might expect, I'm coming up with new ideas that do seem to be working better. A simple example of this was the book that I wrote. I did this tiered pricing strategy and I hadn't really seen other people do this before. And that's an example of where I think through my understanding of marketing and what resonates, I've been able to come up with marketing strategies that are new and also, as you said, kind of track better to success. So you took like a SaaS approach to your doing content right book where you would get access to different tiers? No. So that would have been a very like classic, let me just create different tiers. You know, you see tons of courses do this where they'll have like a self-serve option that's cheaper and then a more premium option that's more like an enterprise tier with SaaS. In this case, what I did was I just had one product, but I had tiered pricing, which meant that when people first bought, they got a certain price. So for the first, I think it was like 30 or 50 copies, it was $10. And then for every Uh. number of copies sold, it went up. So there was a scarcity dynamic there, but also there was a dynamic of just virality where people talked about the pricing mechanic itself. And still to this day, I'll get people say, you know, for a while I had people asking if they could use the dynamic as if I had patented it or something. And that's an example of where there are cases where just through being a marketer, through studying what other people have done, I've understood the dynamics better, the fundamentals, things like scarcity, and been able to come up with new ideas, new approaches. But coming back to the earlier question, I think Using data is so important because even in the example of the tiered pricing, I thought it would work, thought it was a great idea that easily could have not worked. And so I needed to have the data. Even in the back end, I was looking at Gumroad, I could see, oh, when I change the price to this tier, I'm seeing this conversion rate. And at some point, I actually leveled it off prior to release because I was like, oh, I can actually see that the conversion rate at around $30 at this like fifth or sixth tier is flattening out, or I should say above 30. So I I kept it at 30 until launch and now it's gone much higher. But if you are the type of person, and I've met many of these who kind of say, you know what, I think my intuition is right here. That's fine. But why not test it? Why not get the required data to back up your intuition? Also so that you have the confidence once you've run something that it's working. And all of that should ladder back up to what we talked about before, which is having a very clear metric that you're tracking to, but also have that metric auto-populated in a dashboard. So you're not doing these one-off memos where you're saying, hey, at this particular period of time, the data point is this. You should be looking at it in aggregate over a period of time so you can really see what inputs are driving the outputs. I know what it feels like to show up to a job board and understand that whatever price you're gonna pay and whatever amount of time you're gonna spend writing that job ad, That's just a fraction of the whole deal. Hiring takes a ton of time and money, especially if you get it wrong. That's why in 2023, we've created a more affordable way for you to work directly with our experienced recruiters to help you get the result and the hire you're seeking. Check out our new service. It's called Guided Hire, and it starts at just $14.97. With Guided Hire, an experienced team member on our team will help you determine a hiring strategy and promote it to the best candidates, even if they're not on our own job board. Dynamite Jobs will help you track them down and hand deliver and filter for you only the very best applications. Our recruiters are executing this best-in-class strategy all day, every day with great results. In fact, last year, we've made over 100 direct hires. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Let me just read some of these. Our recent hire, senior designer in Colorado, a full-stack engineer in Kosovo, technical support in Hungary, technical project manager in Dominican Republic, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of locations, all kinds of salaries. Check out our team at remotefirstrecruiting.com. We can help run the strategy for you and guide you to the result you seek. So save time, get expert support, and execute a world-class hiring strategy for every single hire. Head on over to remotefirstrecruiting.com and give the team a call. Speaking of confidence, you left TopTal. Can you tell me about that decision? Yeah, so I I mean, I continued to work remotely, but in that case, so... During my time at TopTal, the second half of it is when I started building my own products, my own website, and started writing online. And part of writing online 
a couple of my articles in the first year just really blew up. I think four of them trended on Hacker News, were shared super widely. And as part of that, someone who happened to see a few of them was Sam, the founder of The Hustle. And he reached out and basically, I mean, I've shared this specific DM on Twitter. He basically said something like, hey, I'm building this thing, Trends. I think it'll be really cool. Do you want to work on it? And I, at this point, had spent three years at TopTel, which to some is a long time, to others it's not. But for me, it was a period where I had gone through like three or so different roles there. And I was really happy with my time, but I wanted to try something new. And something I was yearning for is, you know, when I joined TopTel, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a lot smaller, maybe like 150 people. But the time I left, it was much bigger than that. And I was yearning for that small company experience again. That's something I keep coming back to throughout my career. It's just, I love working in a scrappy environment. And I also love not being a manager. So that was another aspect. I was leading a team of 20 at TopTel when I left. And I was going into, I was, first of all, not a huge pay cut, but I was taking a pay cut. I was stepping away from management and I was going into a more scrappy environment. Three things that some people absolutely would hate, but three things that I was very excited to do, especially if it meant I could build this product, which was trends from the ground up. And also I was kind of, you know, in my interviews with The Hustle, promised by the the Hustle team that I would have the autonomy to kind of build the product and to dream it up because it was in its very infant stages. And so that was very exciting to me. And I had also learned, and I've learned this kind of progressively with each time, with each career change that like, the same thing when I was leaving consulting, the more I explore in this phase of my life, the better my career has been. Like I need to, at this stage, go test a bunch of things out. And so that gave me the confidence that I hope the hustle works out and it did. But even if it doesn't, like I need to go try something new. It feels like that's becoming more important in this era where it was typical, like if you're a great IC, you go on to be a people leader. And I feel like it's more profitable than ever just to be like, nah, nope, I'm just going to continue to contribute. <laughs> well, I mean, I've talked about this a lot over the years, and I think it's a huge disservice both to the individual and the company itself that many companies don't have good tracks for individual contributors. And in my own career, and this is no discredit to the companies that I've worked at, I think it's happened three times where I've gone from an IC that ends up being a manager, and then I've stepped away from that. And it's kind of natural when you think about it, because if you're a really good individual contributor, what you end up doing is you end up building something great. That great thing is yep. getting traction. The company wants to invest in it. Okay, we'll invest in it. We'll hire some people. We'll get you help. Okay, who should manage these people? Well, you should, right? You built the product or whatever feature that is getting traction. And that's what's happened in my career is kind of just stumbling into it. And the first time at TopTal, I was very excited. They didn't force me into it. I was like, I've never managed before. This is such a great opportunity. I'm 23 years old. You're letting me manage a 20-person team. Like, wow, what an opportunity. And it was. But throughout my career, I've also, it's not so much become allergic to it, but just been aware of this natural just stumbling into management that happens. And now I'm more, I guess, wary of it. I'm more aware that maybe actually I should push to stay as an IC. And even though it feels great to have some sort of title, or maybe even in some cases at some companies, you're literally told you cannot get paid more unless you're managing these people to push back on that as well. 100%. I've been seeing a lot of innovative founders like kind of hammer away at this specific issue. Like you need to have like a salary, title, prestige, progression. Yes. For great ICs. Exactly. Just dump them right into pointy-haired management is kind of a bummer for them and for the company. Yeah. And it's such a missed opportunity. Like that's the thing is you can, even if you're taking the lens of the company, I've just seen this happen to so many people. If you are a star individual contributor, it is so rare that you're going to be a star manager. And that star I see in some cases can have like a 10x, you know, people joke about the 10x developer. I've seen 10x marketers. I've seen 10x writers. I've seen 10x individual contributors across the board. Now they're rare, but if you've got one, one of the worst things you can do for your company is pigeonhole them into management. A lot of us are readers of Trends in the Hustle and listeners of My First Million. And so we've kind of followed along that story. As an insider and someone who built the product from the early days, what are some things that might surprise us about 
the success of that content and what you learned about meaningful content on the web from working there? So I think trends, I would say the hustle as well. Let me address trends first. So for trends, I think what everyone should do if they want to be surprised is just go to trends.co. If you don't have a subscription, go get a trial. It's a dollar. And just go, there's an archive and go to the very first newsletters that we were sending. And you will be surprised at the quality, the design, everything. It's so scrappy. But I also think what's fascinating about the trend story is with the exception of maybe Glimpse, which I think maybe started before trends, this has become a fully new product category that now there are tons of companies that are specifically branding themselves as trend spotters or people who catch trends when they're early. And I think that's really surprising because for years, the sites that we would use, things like subreddit stats, hrefs, similar web, these tools existed. And so I think it's a great example of how, you know, we talk about other examples and trends, but how opportunity is literally right in front of us and people just don't spot it. And so I think that was a great example of, I guess Sam came up with trends. I helped evolve the product, but I didn't come up with the idea of, he just realized that the conversations he was having about different business opportunities that were, again, right in front of people were not productized yet. And so I think, you know, a lot of people will listen to My First Million or read trends and think, oh, wow, these people are really smart, really unique. How do they find these ideas? But actually, if people were to pay attention to the things right in front of them, the conversations they're having, there are so many opportunities right in front of them. And then the hustle, I think, is a great example of a lot of people overcomplicate content. And the area that I think so many people go wrong in is they care too much about what they're writing about and not how. And the hustle is the perfect example of this, where many people, when they're trying to dream up a newsletter, they're like, oh, what's what's the new thing I should talk about that no one's talking about? Or what's this really niche subject that, again, I don't see a newsletter already addressing? And the hustle went into probably the most competitive space, at least as it relates to content and news, which is business. And it wasn't afraid because Sam had the very, again, kind of obvious realization that a lot of business content is boring. So all it took was a difference in how the content was being written. And I've heard Sam explain it as, it's as if your friend goes and reads the business news for the day and just tells it to you like it is, no BS, no jargon, a little bit of humor, and that's it. And if you read the hustle with that lens, you'll see it. You'll see just the very slight difference in how it compels or how it writes the content And I think that's a very simple takeaway that anyone trying to pursue content can apply. Stop focusing on, again, the what of content, but how you can actually take something that a lot of people participate in and succeed by just thinking about how it's different. I'm wondering if I could get some like tactical ideas from you. Our companies feel the same way, Steph. We all want to create more content, build a larger audience, convert more folks into customers and so on. So you have a lot of kind of different modality experience. Like you wrote viral blog posts, newsletters. You have a wonderful podcast. You have a Twitter account that's followed by like the bigger than any stadium in the world mm-hmm. of people follow you on, on Twitter. If I were to challenge you to sort of grow an audience in each of these categories, I'm wondering if you could maybe start us off with some comparing and contrasting of these different modalities and maybe like some, hey, this is what's working in 2023 that maybe like, if you wanted to go get 100,000 followers, maybe you couldn't have d- follow exactly what I did because the landscape's changing a little bit. I know it's just this enormous play space, but sort of set the diagram. I wonder if you could just jump in and maybe take us back to when you were writing those viral blog posts and why don't you write them anymore? They were wonderful. I should. I've been saying I want to write again for a very long time. I'll actually address that question super quickly and say that one of the hardest parts of being a creator is being consistent. And that's not just because it takes a lot of work, but there's this enhanced pressure that comes with growing an audience where all of a sudden people come to expect something from you. And so when I was writing those blog posts back in the day, and there's opportunity for anyone to do this today still, I truly just had something to say. I had zero audience at that time. And they were going viral because I think I wasn't trying to cater to anyone. I wasn't trying to impress my audience or give them what they expect from me. I was just writing. And 
since then, I stopped writing for a while because I was busy, but I've candidly, I think, avoided coming back. And I actually have an article that I've teased around a little bit about this subject in particular, which is, I think it's called something like the joy of inconsequence. And it's about this idea of just, it's pretty amazing when you can just show up, whether it's to record a podcast, to write an article, and you have zero expectation of anyone reading it. Versus now I have this expectation of I've been away from the keyboard for so long that I feel this pressure, even if it doesn't exist, of what people might expect for me to quote unquote return. A lot of people are generating characters or anonymous to either lean into that, like this account writes in this way, or to free themselves up from, you know, you're kind of moving towards that mini famous kind of idea of like you're building out a personality for yourself that can feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think to your point, I don't really venture into these spaces very much. But if you're talking about anything that is even remotely political or that people might get upset over, I do find the area of pseudonymous or anonymous accounts, especially with the rise of things like AI, there are virtual influencers out there that I think were much harder to create a few years ago. But now you truly can, not just with text, but with images and video and sound. You can create these things that aren't you, but are you. And you can, especially if you, again, you have ideas that maybe aren't so savory to some groups, you can get that out there without having the worry of your identity being attacked. So I have not done that yet, but I, I have been following that space a lot because I do think naturally as things become more heated online, this will become something people look towards. But to come back... I think that's such a fascinating... Sorry, just to to bracket it. I can think of countless examples in our community, but just you can even feel it yourself. Like if you like a certain tweet or like you might want to follow a certain account, but you don't want people to know that you follow them because it's like a lot of people critique their political views. And if I follow them, does that mean that I'm like voting for their political views or I'm just curious about them? And so you're not going to give it that like. Yeah. Or even like in much less controversial, there's a lot of high net worth individuals who just don't want to like stuff because they don't want their paws around the internet. They just want to read the content and go. So like certain sorts of content is just much less likely to be shared on the web. And so there's this whole nother kind of beyond the likes conversation. Absolutely. And while there are bad actors who certainly warrant criticism, I've seen personally how just as you grow an account, as you grow a following, It's incredible what people will take from the things you say or don't say, even things like you're saying likes or follows or just being friends with someone who said something. Yeah, It's incredible how you are put under the scrutiny that you never would have expected because, you know, before I had a following of sorts, I always took the perspective of if someone is being canceled or criticized, well, they kind of not so much deserve it, but they probably did something to warrant it. And I've just seen so many cases more recently, not just from myself, but just where someone really didn't warrant it. They really didn't deserve the kind of criticism or the twisting that can happen with social yeah. media. And so, again, not to say that some people don't deserve what they get, but it's I think it's just much more complex being on the other side, having a following and seeing how things can change. But with that said, I think... Coming back to your question about different types of content, I think there are certain foundational things with content that do span podcasts, newsletters, written audio, video content across the board. But I do think we are in an era where it is important to think of them differently. And I think of this framework for different types of media that I think is helpful or has been helpful to me, which is think about the content that you're creating and the A level of depth that people get from it but also the frequency of interaction. So for example, a podcast, when you really think about it, it's crazy that you can get someone to spend an hour listening to your voice, the fidelity of it, your personality, just the depth of conversation if they choose to listen to a podcast. But then also keep in mind that people listen to, I think it's like six to eight podcasts if they listen to podcasts. And that's the show, not the episode. And so that I kind of liken to people's best friends. People treat podcasts truly like their best friends, the people they spend a bunch of time with that they truly like. They're not just getting something from an informational perspective. They've truly grown in an affinity, often a parasocial relationship with. And so 
podcasts are best friends. Now, if you move further in the other direction, you get to something more like a newsletter. A newsletter is something that I liken to a coworker. When you get a newsletter, you're expecting it in your inbox. You're expecting to see it at a particular time and frequency. And if you think about even, again, the time that you spend with a newsletter, a couple minutes, let's say, to read it, but that's happening, let's say, every week. So those are like your coworkers. And then you have something like a blog post, which you might spend a few minutes with, but you might not. Some people will bounce automatically. When you spend time with that blog post, you may never return to that site again. You probably saw it on Twitter. You probably saw it on Hacker News. And you don't often know or care who wrote it. You're just spending time yeah. trying to get that information out. And so I liken blog posts to more like an acquaintance that you might meet at a conference, probably never see them again. You have a quick interaction, you bond over something, and that's it. And this is important because depending on what kind of audience you're trying to build and also how much time and effort you have to build it, it is much easier to build a large audience of acquaintances or these people you might meet at a conference than it is to build a large audience of best friends, right? And it's interesting because I think we've seen this wave of, it's almost habitual where people will wake up one day and say, oh, I've seen all of these people grow successful podcasts. It's time for me to start a podcast. Podcasts are one of the hardest mediums to grow with. Even if you think about some of the successful podcasts out there, literally Google most successful podcasts in 2022, what you'll get is a list of a bunch of people who already had prior audiences. And those audiences could be yeah. a large podcast network, but it also could be the Obamas. It could be like Sam and Sean aren't in the top 20 podcasts, but they had the hustle to build off of, right? And so a lot of top podcasts did not start from scratch. And so most often I tell people to work from one direction to the other. Even if they find blogs boring, build up an audience that hmm. has the bedrock that we've talked about before, something that you can repeatedly understand and build towards that doesn't rely on some sort of luck of people discovering your podcast and really buying into you. And then from there, once you have traffic, whether it's through your blog, whether it's through your social media accounts, that's when it might make sense to build a slightly stronger relationship with a newsletter, for example. And at some point, maybe it makes sense to build a podcast. It's way harder to do in reverse. If you start a podcast and then you build a newsletter and then you build a blog, the question ultimately that we've brought up several times here is where are you getting your distribution? And that should actually be fundamental to whatever you're starting, whether it's on Twitter, your podcast, et cetera. And ultimately, if you don't have some of those precursor properties, you could say, it's going to be very hard to make a bunch of best friends overnight. What do you think the best way to start from scratch? Let's scratch up a strategy in 2023. I know, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like, I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to build an audience. That's like the New Year's resolutions that entrepreneurs have. Maybe you could sketch us out a plan. Like we reread your book. What might be a strategy that could work in 2023? Honestly, a lot of people get very excited by things like TikTok or again, the idea of launching a podcast because it's easier than ever. But I actually think the strategy has not changed. And I know so many people who have been successful by A, figuring out just what they know a lot about, not trying to guess what other people want, but again, understanding what they know a lot about, doing a bunch of keyword research to understand the lay of the land. And by the way, the reason that I love SEO is because the answers are provided for you. It's incredible that you can understand what the whole world, or at least the cohort of the world, which is very large, that is using Google, you can understand what they're looking for. They're telling you the solutions. And you can see not just what the keywords are, but the difficulty, the number of, or the domain authority that you need to rank to the top. And so what I would mostly encourage people to do, it's not sexy, it's maybe not as fun as some other approaches, is to carve out a niche through SEO and then build from there. Once you carve out the niche, you can add a newsletter. You can also simultaneously build your social account around that niche. I mean, that's a pretty classic thing we've seen where someone's like, oh, I'm the real estate guy or I'm the plants girl or whatever it might be. So you can do that in parallel. But I think a great example of this is Pat from Starter Story. He's a friend of mine and he years ago started building Starter Story. And 
when he first started building, he was also building a social following that did relatively well, but then he disappeared for years. And what did he do during those years? He just very quietly invested in SEO. Now I think Starter Story is doing millions of dollars a year. And it's all from organic. It's truly all from organic. And there are many other people who at the same time invested in these very, very sexy, cool, new social channels and built up these large followings, but they can't monetize them. And they're also very fragile, right? If an algorithm changes, if all of a sudden people no longer like TikTok, well, there goes their audience. Pat has built up now this really strong website, this domain authority, but also a newsletter, a cohort of customers that actually trust him. If people are concerned with building something sustainable and has a clear path to success, I would go with that. It's fascinating because you have 100,000 followers on Twitter, which is what every founder, at least nowadays, is curious about. And um, it's often the money is, I guess, a little quieter. Why don't you advocate more for following a, creating a Twitter following or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are many reasons that you could start a Twitter following. I actually have been tweeting for years. And even though I have a large following, grown a lot slower than other people on the platform and truly just do it for fun. Like I, I don't go on Twitter and think, huh, I should tweet today or like, how do I grow a following? And actually I've become quite allergic to that because you see tons of people who go on Twitter specifically for that purpose where you can tell, you know, for a while there was a thread boys where it's like, oh, I'm doing this as engagement bait. I know it grows my account. I'm not proud of it, but it works. But if you look at a lot yeah. of those people, again, look at the businesses they've built on the back end. And this is not really to criticize them, but more so to say that Twitter is a great place to feel great about yourself, right? Like I feel great. Or bad. Yeah, or bad, right? But I feel great if one of my tweets <laughs> takes off and for the rest of the day I have this dopamine high. But then those people, like I'm not converting them really anywhere. My book did relatively well on Twitter, but I think that a lot of these social platforms give you a lot of reason to think that they're providing a lot of value in terms of driving business. But ultimately, again, like if you look at the metrics of people who are successful through SEO versus Twitter, it is not even close. And there are so many examples of companies like NerdWallet that have literally gone public and their whole strategy is organic. Tell me someone on Twitter that has been able to build a business through Twitter that has then gone public because of it. I can't think of a single one. And so there might be examples like, like Mr. Beast on YouTube, but YouTube itself is a parallel to organic, right? It has that foundational bedrock where you're actually, it's a search engine, unlike Twitter, which is a feed. So the search engine itself lends to people searching for certain topics and you being able With to- With intent. Exactly. Yeah. So Steph, we've taken an hour of your time. The last question is the hardest question. 80% of our audience are small business owners, mostly location independent digital. 20% are like looking at the 80% thinking I'm going to make that jump, hopefully this year. What sort of advice do you have for people that are like, man, I want to do what you did? Well, I think... One, focus on one channel. If you are, if you're specifically speaking of content there, I think a lot of people are like, oh, again, let me start a blog. Let me start a podcast. Let me start a newsletter. Let me also grow a Twitter. Focus on one channel and really concentrate your efforts there. And again, I would recommend SEO, but if you want to go elsewhere, that's fine. And then I also think just having the expectations realistic that for many people who create content, A, they don't succeed. But also B, if they do, it takes a very long time. So I remember around a year ago going to a conference and someone asking me, like, how'd you build your Twitter account? And how'd you get it to the size? And I literally, because I had been asked this before, in other cases, I've said, oh, well, here are some tips and tricks. But in this case, I was like, you know what? This is how I did it. And I listed out, like, I wrote this many articles. I did this many tweets. I wrote a book. I did a podcast. I learned to code. I created these projects online. I marketed them. I was on Product Hunt. I was active there. I went in these communities. Like the amount of time and the number of projects, and I've tweeted this as well, was so much more than what you'd expect to get to the result that I did. Because again, some other people have a much simpler story where it's like, oh, I did this many Twitter threads and I got there. But the point is that I think those are the outliers. And I think that if you were going to go into the content game, it should really be with the expectation that it is a very long-term game 
And if you stick with it, especially if you're choosing the right channels that have that bedrock instead of chasing those highs and lows, then I think it is very possible. But I think, again, having that expectation set is really important. Reminds me of the advice, if you want to be a great writer or a writer at all, do something worth writing about. That too. I mean, my stuff was really successful at the beginning because actually that was partially the time where I was traveling a lot. I was in the midst of a bunch of other creators. I also was in this unique period where not very many people were working remotely, but a lot of people were interested in it. And I happened to be ahead of the curve there. And so, yeah, I also think that's an important aspect where if you can go actually experience something that's different so that you can share it. And even if you don't think you have something unique to share, the simplest question is just to ask yourself, what do people ask me about or what do people ask advice from me on? Because that's just like a very clear signal of what people actually find that you know valuable. And I would just take that and start creating content with it. And again, use the keyword search results that or the data that exists, because that is just such a good other piece of data that's telling you what people care about. Steph Smith, thanks for taking the time to join us on the TNBA podcast. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Steph Smith for joining me on this conversation. You can find her work and connect with what she's up to through so many different channels. One is her book, Doing Content Right. Also, she has a wonderful blog and newsletter. And of course, check out her amazing podcast, You Don't Learn in School, as well as the A to 16Z podcast. Steph is everywhere. <laughs> a great follow on Twitter as well. All those links are listed on her website, stephsmith.io. That's it. We'll be back next week as usual, Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.